Well, I've been saying for a little while we were going to get back to Mark. Mark is a text we were in for about a year-ish, and we've taken some break here for a while. I just want to say two things. One, yes, we changed the seats in the auditorium. Thank you for how encouraging all of you have been about that. (laughs) It's just been a joy to my soul just to feel that. Along those lines, let me tell you why. You guys were packing the place out last week, and um, we've been, for a while, slowly reducing the number of chairs that were in the room so that we could just have a little bit more of a homey feel. There were some things that were set up back over Christmas, really. I kind of liked the way that that felt, and so we pulled some chairs out of the room. Brad, who still, along with Sue, has 69 of these chairs in his barn for about three years now, was saying it's probably time for us to start thinking about what we're going to do with those chairs. And so um, we weren't quite sure. Are we going to start stuffing this room with them again? And we thought we'd just sort of let your responsiveness be the thing that determined how we do. Well, last week it was pretty obvious. We needed to get some more chairs in here. So we have not all 69. In fact, all 69 are still there. We still have a couple stacks that are back in our nursing mom's room. Sorry to the nursing moms who are now using the nursery. It's just a lot of that going on. So um, let me just say it this way. This is not the last time you're going to feel a little bit of shuffling with the chairs in the auditorium. But it is a good problem to have that we needed to put more in. So again, things are different. God's word is the same. Moving on. second big thing that I wanted to say, though, is Mark 13 is a text. It's a text. It's a passage. It's one that goes along with uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21. We've looked at this passage, this scene before when we were in the, the gospel of Luke, but that was a long time ago. It was in the old plaza. James Domzalski actually preached it to us. So for those of you who even know that name, you realize, oh, it was a while ago. Those of you who don't know that name, you recognize. We haven't been on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, which is what this passage is called, the Olivet Discourse. And to just kind of get a little bit of context, verse 1 in Mark 13 begins this way. And as he came out of the temple. Having come out of the temple, we need to remember that Jesus came into the temple, and really when Jesus came into the temple was right at the beginning of what we've thought of as the Passion Week. We're coming up chronologically for us, right, in the church calendar, we're approaching Passion Week. That's what Mike announced this morning. Lent begins 40 days later. It's uh, Palm Sunday. Well, we looked at Palm Sunday a while back when we got into Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 is when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. This would be the final triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. But after Jesus arrived, remember, on the donkey, which he mastered, predicted would be there, showed mastery over every situation. Uh, A colt that hadn't had a rider before was now carrying the Prince of Peace into Jerusalem. And he immediately went into the temple. Going into the temple, he cleansed the temple. He purged out those who were abusing its purpose. And he got in trouble. And so person after person was sent by the different religious leaders in order to scold or trap or trick Jesus. And oddly enough, in all the time he's been in the temple, the only person he could commend was a widow who gave an inconsequential gift. And ultimately, she's the only one who really gets a thumbs up from Jesus. Everybody else got squelched by Jesus. One guy was told, you're close to the kingdom of God. But the only thumbs up went to the woman that nobody would have noticed except for Jesus. And now he's on his way out. And having gone out down the valley and back up the mountain that would face Jerusalem, he's on the Mount of Olives. And we read, one of his disciples came to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, we're going to talk about the scope and the nature of Jerusalem a little bit more next week. This is such a text. Mark 13 is so weighty, we're going to take it sort of the way you'd take a a big meal, just a bite at a time. 
And so this is going to be a three-byte chapter for us. The first bites, verses 1 through 13. But we'll talk a little bit more about the temple. But just to say this, they weren't wrong. We go and we marvel at the pyramid stones, and they were nothing compared to the kind of stones that Herod had erected in the temple. But just a brief history. This isn't Solomon's temple. That had been destroyed by the Babylonians. This isn't really Ezra's temple. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah helped the people return back from their exile, and Ezra rebuilt one. That's not this temple either. This is Herod's temple. And Herod, with all the wealth and the might of Rome, was also sort of Jewish in a way, and so he sought to build up what he knew would build his popularity and build his fame. This was a temple, but in Herod's eyes, it was also a little bit of a monument to Herod. But it had some pretty impressive stones. So these were wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And you can sort of just see them sort of sitting back at the mountain, looking out and seeing it right now. Now, if you're on that mountain today, what you see is the Dome of the Rock. Because on the Temple Mount is not this temple anymore. And that's because of what Jesus is about to predict. Jesus said... Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite Peter, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? There are in Mark two main questions, a when question and a what question, right? You see them there? When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? If you were reading in Luke, if you were reading in Matthew, you'd get a little bit more of something that feels like it's talking about this, but they throw on a third question. What's then the sign of the end of the age? Now, that question, how it's interpreted and how it's answered, is what makes this a text, not a lowercase t-e-x-t, Not just a capital T with a lowercase e-x-t. This is a capital, if I'm texting this to you, I'm yelling. This is a text, a T-E-X-T. And R.C. Sproul, preaching in this, opened his sermon saying the following, I'm about to sail my ship into troubled waters to say the very least. And I'm not sure how to handle all the difficulties in the Olivet Discourse. And I wrote a book on how I approach this particular portion of Scripture. We are dealing here with a very complicated matter, and R.C. Sproul is not alone in this. If you were to try and take Mark 13 and make it into a movie, and we made a trailer out of it, and I did that voiceover guy who was talking about Mark 13, I might make a statement like this. Donald English says, it's an exegetical minefield of a chapter. James Edwards said, one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand. And Sinclair Ferguson said, what is Jesus talking about? (laughs) Now, in Sinclair Ferguson's defense, I really just pulled that one because I love the way he said it. He's actually writing a little bit of a Bible study, so he was asking it. He wasn't just saying, I have no idea what's going on. But actually, if we had to grab agreement from all of the scholars that are there, You have what are called reformed and amillennial scholars who look at the end times. You have some that are reformed but are called dispensational or premillennial scholars. You probably, if you've listened to Moody Radio over the last decade, heard some of them. If you've read the Left Behind books, you've certainly pretty adept at at trying to follow what that would look like. But we have a wealth of people, all of whom we would call evangelical all of whom we would say are inerrantists, meaning they believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that the original copies are, are faithful from what God actually revealed and that what's been handed down to us is a reliable copy of that and that we can come to these passages and we can say, this is God's word. All these brothers do that. All these sisters who are reading this do that. And I don't have that many commentaries on Mark and they don't agree. What I want to give you, before we even dive into this T-E-X-T, is to give you a little bit of a grade to help you understand what we would say, this is probably an orthodox way of looking at Mark 13. 
Because R.C. Sproul, I think, best described it this way. Jesus makes a pronouncement that the temple is going to be destroyed. He does it 40 years beforehand, and he is significantly impressive in the way that he predicts what's about to happen to the most important building that the Israelites would know. It's not just their capital. It's their church. It's their temple. This is the place where God brings his presence to the earth. And he's saying that's going to go away. Now, at the end of Mark 13, you hear Jesus referencing a fig tree. And that's kind of a reminder that when Jesus even entered into the temple, remember before he went in, he saw a fig tree and he tried to get fruit from it and there was no fruit. And so he cursed it, which doesn't make sense agriculturally because he probably shouldn't have gotten fruit. He could have said that maybe there's a little bit. But anyway, there was the indication of fruitfulness and no fruit. He went into the temple, found a fig tree with all the leaves and appearances of fruitfulness, but no deep, real fruit. And then he cursed that fig tree, cleansed that temple, and then went back and the disciples said, whoa, look at the fig tree. You just cursed it. The thing's dead now. This isn't just Jesus being unkind to a fig tree. This is Jesus making a symbolic statement. At the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to make another point about a fig tree, which gives us an indication that if we read Mark 13 and we ask questions about what's going to happen in the next decade here on this planet, we are missing the point of Mark 13. Mark 13 is clearly about the temple. There's no question about that. Jesus makes a prediction on what's going to happen. Historically, we know that within 40 years, it happened. That makes him a reliable prophet. Here's the problem. There's also stuff in Mark 13. We're not going to get to it this week. Darren's got another week. There's also stuff in this that sounds a lot like Jesus isn't just talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD. It sounds like he's talking about stuff that's going to happen out into the future. And the way that that is dealt with Either means one of two things, and let's look at a little bit of a uh, a paradigm here, a, a grid to try and understand this. Question number one is this. Did Jesus think he would return during that generation on the planet? Let's say that there is a yes and a no to that answer. Secondly, let's ask another question. Did he return, right? Here are some orthodox positions. In other words, Positions that defend what we would believe about Jesus. We believe Jesus is God. We believe God does not lie. Therefore, we don't believe Jesus lies. We believe Jesus is the prophet par excellence in the Bible. Therefore, every other prophet, if he's held to the standard of, do you say something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then therefore you're not a good prophet. We probably want to at least examine Jesus' prophetic role in that kind of term. So the question is, did he think he was going to return? Did he say he was? Yes or no? And then did he? Yes or no? Does the grid make sense to you guys? We're going to get four quadrants, right? Here's what the quadrant one would look like. Yes and yes. He thought he would return, and he did return within that generation. Now, if you could read the passage, and you could say, yeah, it sure looks like Jesus said he was going to return in that generation, and he returned in that generation, then you'd be, in a sense, orthodox. You'd be defending the reliability and the accuracy of Jesus. Make sense? All right. There's also another way to say it, and that's no and no. He didn't think that he was going to return, and he didn't return. He predicted something, but in his his lifetime, he's not saying, I'm coming back in this time, and he didn't come back in this time. So that would be another sort of view of this passage that would, again, defend Jesus as being reliable. He said yes, and he did it. He said no, and he didn't do it. Jesus is good in both of those situations, right? There's a third one. This is a little bit of a maybe-ish kind of thing. But I want you to think, before we even think about this one, I want you to think about the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. Now, I know you're not necessarily Old Testament scholars when it comes to all the relationships between Jonah and Nahum. But I can remember that Jonah and Nahum both prophesied to Nineveh because if you take their names together, you get Jonahum. And that's always the way that I remember it. You've got the N-A-H, Jonah and Nahum. I kind of remember the two of them together that way. They both prophesied to Nineveh. Probably know Jonah's story more, right? Nineveh was wicked. 
If you know the VeggieTales stories, you know they were fish slappers, and so that didn't work out very well for everybody who got slapped by the fish. The Ninevites were cruel. God brought a message of judgment against the Ninevites, and so what did Jonah do? Jonah said, in three days, this city will be overthrown. And he was supposed to make his way all the way across the city. He didn't make his way. This is before, and, or this is way after all the stuff with the, you know, the fish and, and getting vomited up onto the land. When he actually delivered what he was going to deliver, it didn't happen. Was Jonah a false prophet? Jonah said this was going to happen. But it didn't happen. But we don't consider Jonah a false prophet. That's because almost all scholars who would read, and basically all of us who would read the book of Jonah, would say, it's not that he was doing a predictive thing here. He was giving a warning. Now, later on, the second half of Jonahum, the prophet Nahum actually went into Nineveh. The, the generation of Ninevites and Assyrians that had repented were gone. He brought in a new warning and said, you have returned to your old ways. God will not spare you this time. There is no mercy And they were then defeated by the Babylonians. So, prophecy against them? Is Jonah a false prophet because the city was not destroyed? No. The prophet served his purpose. The prophecy served its purpose. And the people repented. The prophet was reliable and faithful. He proclaimed what would happen if there was no repentance. Jesus could be viewed in Mark 13 in a similar way. That what he was saying about the temple and also what he was saying about his return was intended with the goal of being able to provide and provoke a real sense of repentance. The truth is that when the temple was destroyed, it was largely Jews that were killed, not Christians, because Christians remembered Jesus' words and they fled at the time of the attack. The siege on Jerusalem, they didn't run into the city, they ran to the hills. Those who ran into this city were largely Jewish, those not heeding God's word. Could it be that through the process of what Jesus was sharing, there was a warning, the warning was heeded, and therefore his prophecy was delayed? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interpretation I read. I would say that we would put both yes and no in quotes then, and I could say this would also probably be a faithful way of defending who Jesus is and in reading Mark 13. Are you aware yet of why this is a text? There's a lot at stake. Here's where it really comes down. Oh, there's a fourth option. No, he didn't think he was returning, and yes, he returned anyway. That's kind of ridiculous. Nobody believes that. We're not really going to consider that one. Um, We just have no exegetical basis for that, that Jesus wasn't talking about something that happened, and he had no idea what was going on. Yeah. So there's three options that we've got here. And I want to submit this. I don't think that by the time we're done with Mark 13, all of you are going to agree with me. But what I do want to make sure is that we can respect those who view each other's way of reading this passage differently if we are defending the integrity of God's word and defending the integrity of God's character. I think if we can come away with those, this is not a passage we base membership on. It's not a passage we base fellowship on, and I'd encourage you not to do that. Have some robust conversations with each other. Listen well. Make sure you understand what somebody else is saying before you insert your part. But then, lovingly, give a but what abouts. I'm going to try and give you a lot of but what abouts in the midst of this. All right? Here's what we can't do is to take away the brackets, the quotation marks from the yes and no. We can't say he thought he was going to, but he was wrong. This is the real dilemma that R.C. Sproul is saying. Jesus has made a prediction about the temple, and it happened. Reliable prophet. But if he was also saying, I'm coming back in this day, and he didn't, he is therefore not a reliable prophet. And if you're reading sort of a view, uh, a scholar of God's word who doesn't actually believe this is God's word, they're going to come up with some sort of a way of saying exactly this, that Jesus thought he was coming. The disciples thought he was coming. He didn't come, and therefore the Bible and Jesus are unreliable. Jesus cannot be God, and this cannot be God's word. Do you see why this is an important text? We need to read this in such a way that we are coming away 
asking hard questions, asking real questions, but also facing the dilemma. R.C. Sproul puts the dilemma this way. Suppose I were to claim that last night I received a special revelation from God. I predict that sometime within the next 12 months, the United States will fall. The Capitol building in Washington will be destroyed. The White House will be demolished. The 50 states of the Union will be dissolved. And the United States as an independent nation will cease to exist. I don't know the exact timing, but only that it will happen sometime within the next 12 months. Without question, within a year, you would know for certain whether my claim was true or false. If it didn't come to pass, you would be justified in labeling me a false prophet, unworthy of your attention. Do you see the dilemma of Mark 13? All right. If you do, then you understand what exactly has happened so far. Jesus, do you see the temple? Yes, I see the temple. Isn't it impressive? It is. More impressive is that within a generation, it won't be here. Whoa. That's the first 13 verses. Is Jesus saying something beyond that? Yes, he is. We'll get there in a week. But today, we've got verses 5 through 13 that Jesus is going to use to direct exactly the way he wants to prepare his disciples for the imminent destruction, within their lifetime destruction of the, well, within the generation. Some of them won't last that long due to martyrdom. But within the generation, this temple will be destroyed. And so Jesus is going to give them signposts that are leading their way to that event. He's going to show them signposts, things that are going to happen within their lifetime, and he's going to tell them how to respond to those. I think they're instructive because sometimes we read things that are true for people in the moment, right? And we don't read that as instructive. We don't read that as, well, we're supposed to take this as an example and pattern our lives off of it. That was just something that was true for these guys in this moment. I'll give you another example. Two times Jesus sends out his disciples One time he tells them to go out empty-handed. Another time he tells them to go arm and and fund themselves before they go. If we read those out of context, we don't know which one of those we're supposed to obey, do we? That's a silly way to read the Bible, guys. Jesus is saying something to his disciples and one moment and one mission, another moment, another mission. We can't take them and make universal principles out of them, can we? We got to read them in the moment for what's actually happening. We got to ask the question, Is this just something happening to these disciples in this moment, or can we take universal principles away from it? I'm saying, yes, I think we can. There are things that are true, and the general rule for whether you can do that, like using the Old Testament law, should we view the law in such a way that it's binding on us today? One great rule to just ask is, does the New Testament repeat the idea? If it does, then yes, it's binding. That's a simple one. There's other rules. How, do, how we view what kinds of laws they are, civil or moral or, or, you know, um, or, or religious. But simply put, if these are things that are repeated in other places, then the laws still kind of exist for us today. Same way to take principles that we see in a particular moment, a particular story, a particular context. And I think that these four things that we hear from Jesus, I think they're instructive for us today. So the first one starts in verse 5. Here's the first signpost Jesus gives. He says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Signpost number one is false messiahs. And Jesus' instruction in the middle of that is, don't be deceived. Right? You see it right there. See that no one leads you astray. Now, do you see why from the very beginning, I would say I think this one's instructive for us? If you're not aware that within those who claim to speak for Jesus, who who claim to read the Bible and then deliver it to people, that there are people who absolutely butcher who Jesus is and butcher what the Bible says, you're not paying attention in Christianity today. Frankly, most of the time what we try to do in this church is to deliver before you the sort of thing that you'd consider in the realm of currency, not studying the counterfeits, but studying the real. I want you to get so familiar with the feel of real doctrine, with the feel and the the texture, the shape, and what happens when you put it under the light, the faithful way to read the Bible, so that when somebody gives you something, it's it's as though you're like, this doesn't feel right. I'm just not sure, sure why, but this just doesn't feel right. That's the approach that we take. We don't use the pulpit. We don't use most of our time to try and say, I want to talk to you about all the ways that a lot of people out there are wrong. 
And I, we, in other words, we try to define ourselves by what we believe rather than by what we don't believe. But that's half of the battle, I think, anymore. Well, it's more than half the battle. It's the important half of the battle. But if you're not aware of the prosperity gospel, the idea that God only is faithfully working in somebody's life if they're doing well, and that if you're not doing well, that's a sign that you have fallen away from God. If you're not aware of that teaching, it's garbage and you should reject it at every chance you can get. It is the major thing we are exporting from our country overseas. You want to think about all the plastic we produce that we send to other countries? That's nothing compared to the garbage of prosperity theology that we have imported and dumped into other Christian churches internationally. It is something our country and our church, generally speaking, in the United States should be ashamed of. Because if you suffer, and the only way of viewing suffering is that you are then therefore in, under God's curse, then one, you're skipping the bulk of the gospel, you're missing the way that God uses the cross, and you're ignoring the way Paul talks about his own suffering and the suffering of the churches that are there. And yet, this is really popular. Probably equally popular is something called moral, theor- the- moral therapeutic deism. Start with the word deism. It's one that you'd probably know. It's the view that God, like a clockmaker, makes a clock, winds it up, and lets it go. So how do you relate to the clockmaker? You relate to him two ways, morally and therapeutically. Meaning everything he's given to you is therapy for you. It's basically designed to make you feel good. That's why God has spoken, is to be able to puff you up and do some therapeutic work on you and to give you some moral guidelines. That's all God cares about. He doesn't care about a relationship with you. He doesn't care about whether or not you've pleased or displeased him. He doesn't care about all the stuff Jesus came to do in order to bring your relationship right to him. He just started this thing and he's given you some therapeutic and moral guidelines. That is garbage. It is absolute garbage. And if we reduce the message and the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church to trying to take, for example, our kids and our teenagers and just make sure that they get good jobs and don't sleep with the wrong people before they get married, then we've probably fallen into this heresy. That is not the goal that God sent Jesus for. It is not what discipleship is all about. We've got prosperity theology. We've got moral therapeutic deism. We've got the, the, the struggle between legalism. God loves us because of what we do. And antinomianism. God doesn't care the way that we live because grace just takes care of all of it. Paul's words, by no means. But these are dangers at work in the church today. We are in a former Jehovah's Witness building. We have redeemed it for the name of Jesus, but we are aware that both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are deeply committed to ridding the world of Trinity churches because Trinity Church believes that Jesus is God and they are actively opposed. You've got Christian science, right? You've this idea that the way we think creates realities in us, and then we can speak those realities into existence, which seems a little prosperity theology-ish, but has just deep roots. This is not to even think about the fact that we have the what used to be separate religions and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and, and Islam that are now making their way into the church because people are thinking, well, if it's just one God and we're all after the same thing, then we can just bring truth from any one of these religions and that'll work. There are churches buying into this, largely at the denominational levels, but still. There's the influx of New Age spirituality. And then there's just the threat that has become so much more popular because the shackles are off of all of the secularists and all of the atheists. They have absolutely no problem saying that we're ridiculous, where it would have been a little bit more culturally taboo to say and to speak that way before. But we are under assault, folks. And if we think that because somehow the 50s felt more Christian or this, the 80s felt more Christian, that somehow this is new for us, let's just remember Acts chapter 5. Before these days, 
Thutis rode up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all those who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. That's Gamaliel speaking to the religious leaders that had captured the first disciples. They were out there preaching the gospel, and the question is, what to do about them? They're talking about Jesus. We thought we got rid of this Jesus, but now the message is even bigger. What should we do? Gamaliel says, guys, there's these messiahs. We've already heard of them. Josephus speaks of these two, but uh, James Edwards, one of the more scholarly commentators that I was looking at, uh, he, he wrote the following. The spate of Gnostic literature testifies to the proliferation of Jewish and especially Gnostic sects in the latter half of the first century that raised an alien message in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. How did, you got that one? Okay, good. Moving on. Within that century... What he's saying is if you span some of the, not so much Christian teaching, but the stuff that was spinoffs of Christian teaching, you had messiahs all the time doing exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Jesus came to identify a problem and to be the solution to it. There are a ton of false saviors out there saying the main problem is the food. The main problem is what's going on in your head. The main problem is the way that you were raised. The main problem is this, that, or the other thing. And guess who has a solution? I do. It's amazing. This is not new for our day. This is exactly what has been going on. James Edwards saying it was happening after Jesus uh, was ascended. Here we're reading that it happened right in the very beginning in the book of Acts. Jude chapter 1. One of the last letters written. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered for the, to the saints. Listen as what's happened to this false teaching. It's not just outside the church. Jude says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There will one day be an undisputed ruler over this world. There will one day be peace on earth. There will one day be a king who reigns and everyone acknowledges him as Jesus Christ. That is not this day. Until that day, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. Probably this year, maybe it's over the summer, we'll probably try to put out some sort of a Sunday school, Saturday morning, evening kind of thing where we're looking at the influx of some of these kind of false teachings into the church and asking the question, how can we obey Jesus and see that nobody leads us astray? Because it is out there. Second thing Jesus says starts in verse 7. He says, And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So we get, secondly, rumblings of war. And Jesus says to that, don't be surprised. Thirdly, he points and continues on to global disasters and says nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So to rumblings of war, he says, don't be surprised. To global disasters, he says, don't, don't hold your breath. Don't think that this was just going to be a sprint. But how many times have you talked with someone and potentially how many times have you, looking at current events, looking at the, the trajectory of our nation, looking at the morality that the world is either buying into or rejecting, have you said, whoa, I mean, Jesus is clearly coming back in our generation. I... I long for that to be true. But I find very little textual reason that we can claim that that will be true. 
I think there's a healthy sense that everyone who's seen sin kind of make some grounds in their day feels like, all right, Jesus, this is enough. One of the things that comforts me (laughs) is that when we read in the book of Revelation, a group of people who are not on the planet because they were martyred, but are in the presence of God and are crying out to God, God, how long? These are folks untouched, it would seem, by sin anymore. These are folks whose desires have been purified. Glorification in some level has penetrated their being and they are still asking God, why have you not paid people back? Why have you not returned? How long until you make everything right? And I would say if that is one of the cries of heaven where God is being seen and worshipped as he is, and there is still within the creatures a longing for God to make everything right, I think we're going to feel that. And so when somebody tells me, Jesus, he's just got to come back in our day, right? I I don't want to squelch that and say, haven't you read the Bible? I want to say, boy, I I feel what you're feeling. We are groaning. The earth is groaning. We who are, are married to God by faith, we are longing for him to be here. But I don't know. I wish I knew. I wish I could say yes. But we don't know. And if you've been suffering, and it's not just that there are wars out there that are scary, It's not just that if you went back over 2020, 2021, 2022, and you heard of Ada and Yoda and Ida and Ian, those are all hurricanes that did damage. If you just think about what the devastation of 4,000 people that have died in Turkey and in Syria, if you go back and think about Sandy, we don't have to do history lessons in order to think about the fact that there are famines and earthquakes. I don't care if you agree or disagree with what caused COVID and the global response to it. But we don't need a history lesson to see that people are starving. One of our proudest moments for me as a church was when we came to you and said, we know of people in Nepal we can help. The government's not going to help them. Will you help them? We will match your donation. And you said, yes, we're going to give you nine grand. And we were like, oh. <laughs> so when we said we're going to match that donation, I love that moment. Because there was a sense that we felt the suffering of the world. And we said, not, we're going to flee. We're going to get out of here. We're, what's going on, God? How can you not come back? We said, okay, he's not back yet. Let's extend mercy. Let's extend help. Let's do something about this. If you want to think, I, I was just reading over, uh, oh, phooey, I forgot to write down the name of the website I was on. It's one of those that you, you give money for, for orphans. It's like Covenant Mercies. What is it, Aldo? Then? It's Compassion. Thank you. Compassion had a, what are the, the worst disasters of the last few years? That was, that was one of their websites, right? And, and, and they said, this is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing here. I was totally depressed and totally discouraged just reading 2020, 2021, 2022. The number of countries where people are just slaughtering each other. And then refugees and orphans are trying to flee and figure out what's going on. Venezuela is on their list every year because of the financial meltdown that's going on. Wars, rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Those are Jesus' instructions to us. James Edwards said it this way, the purpose of this litany of woes there in seven and then mainly in eight is not to lure believers into speculations about the end, but to anchor them to watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. Believers ought not to be alarmed for the end is not yet. The calamities of these verses can never impede the kingdom. This is what Jesus is saying to those right around him. Peter, Andrew, James, John. When is this going to happen? It's coming. Here are the signposts you're going to see. 
You're going to hear rumblings of wars. You're going to hear false teaching. You're going to hear about global disasters. Don't be surprised. Don't be misled. And don't be holding your breath for this to be over. The Bible Project, when they're doing their little video over this, right, is talking about it. And he, sees, he, he lists these out and he says, so kind of like the news that you hear every year. I think it's a good summary of what's been happening. It's happened significantly up until that point. R.C. Sproul um, quotes Josephus. So this is impressive. I'm quoting a scholar who's quoting a historian for you. So there you go. It's just a little nugget right now and a moose-bouche of, of, uh, of a commentator quote here. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote much concerning these signs that Jesus mentioned. He reported four severe famines between 41 and 50 AD in which many people starved to death. He reports two very serious earthquakes, one during the reign of Caligula and the second during the reign of Claudius. Next came Nero, who ushered in a great persecution against Christians. And that leads us to the fourth signpost that Jesus said, which is increasing persecution. He describes it for his disciples this way. Be on your guard. Now, do you understand if you miss the first three signposts, there's no way you're going to obey verse 9? If you think that bad things happening means you just need to throw up your hands and run away, despair of the fact that God isn't going to be at work in this world anymore, and just stop the tasks that he's given you, there's no way we're going to be on our guard because we're going to be surprised. We're going to be holding our breath and totally disappointed, and it's going to lead us to be led astray by all kinds of false teachers. But if we are resolved to say that Jesus not only knew what was coming then, he knew what's coming in our future as well, then we don't have to worry when we see these certain things, when we hear these things, and we can be on our guard. Why? Here's the specific instruction he gives to them. They will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now think about Peter. When he first met Jesus, he was fishing. And Jesus, after miraculously working and intervening and showing him, I'm way better at this than you are, and you've been doing this your whole life, said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, Peter knew hard work as a fisherman. Peter knew what it was like to struggle and strain against the nets and to have troubles in his world. And so I don't know how much he took those troubles of fishing and related over to what Jesus was going to call him to do, but in the moment, he had just seen a pretty significant miracle that brought great things and great prosperity to him. He would certainly have left everything that he had known. He would have left his nets, just like James and John would have left their nets there before Jesus. And all who were called, leaving things behind, following Jesus. What if this is the way Jesus had opened? Hey, Peter, see what I can do with fish? Want to come follow me? Because here's what it's going to lead to. You're going to be delivered over to councils, beaten in synagogues, stand before governors. You're going to bear witness. The gospel will be proclaimed in the middle of that, but you'll be brought to trial and delivered over. But you don't have to worry because I'll tell you what to say. But in the middle of it, families are going to turn against themselves. And at the very end, you are going to have to endure to the end. Um, what do you mean by the end? You hear this context, you know what the end means. This is not a retired life sipping drinks on a beach. You're enduring to the end of your life that is going to be brought about by the people that have handed you over or you've been handed over to. Standing before the councils, beaten in the synagogues, you are going to be doing hard work. And Jesus says, don't give up. 
Now, you remember the story about the fig tree. Fig tree, bread, fig tree, bread, temple in the middle. You identify the sandwich by what's in the middle, not by the bread, right? If I say, what kind of a sandwich are you having? It's not a bread sandwich. It's probably a peanut butter jelly sandwich because that's what's in the middle. Michael showed us that same thing, a chiastic structure last week where there are things that bracket and they move you into the middle of what's important. Did you notice that in verses 9 through 13? Did you feel that a little bit? Because here's what you just read if we look at it chiastically. You heard a warning, be on your guard, and a warning at the end, endure to the end. Moving in from both of those, we heard about how you're going to be delivered. You'll be delivered for beatings, and you'll be delivered by your family. You'll be delivered before the council, and families will deliver each other. And what is right in the middle of that there in verse 10? The arc of all of this is that the gospel will be preached. When I read it, didn't it feel like that was a little out of place? Like if I was just reading this, right? You will bear witness before them and when they bring you to trial and deliver you and do not be anxious beforehand. That feels like the way it should go, right? Verse 10 just sort of stood out. And so I was reading this, I'm like, what's going on? Now, I'm no chiastic structure expert. But when I feel something in the middle of a story that stands out, I think one of the things we can learn from those that are chiastic structure experts is that's the point. The point isn't the need for strength. It's there, but that's kind of foundational. The point isn't the context of persecution. That's there. That's going to cause the problem. It's going to be based on the strength you've got to endure them. But the main promise that God is making, that Jesus is telling to the disciples, and I think transferring out to us, is that you must be strong. You have to be on your guard and endure to the end because in the context of persecution, there is a call, and that is that a group of people will stand faithful to the gospel and proclaim it to the end of their days. And Jesus doesn't say, please do it. His words in verse 10 are, it must first be proclaimed. Which is exegetically or grammatically kind of a promise and kind of a command at the same time. It's like if dad walks into the room with his boys And says, you'll be in bed in 10 minutes and this room will be clean when I return. It's a command and a promise and a threat a little too, isn't it? That's a little bit the way this text feels. You must be strong. You must endure. Peter, Andrew, James, John, pay attention. I need you to endure all the way till your end. These stones being overthrown, it's not just they that will be overthrown. You will face your end too. And I need you to endure to the end. I was talking with a young man this week and we are just talking about what he liked about Trinity. He wasn't a lander, so don't worry, I'm not like cheating here or something. And he said, I like, I like the idea of being part of a church where I get to see people be faithful across all generations. And I'll say, our Ageless Grace folks, thank you for enduring faithfully to the end. We need, we need you so desperately. Brad, Sue, thank you for leading this contingent of our church so that we can see this is what it looks like to be faithful to the end. Isn't it encouraging to hear Stephen Barb come back from Nepal and say, yeah, we're probably going to do this again, as long as we can, as long as this works out. We'll go again, I hope, to our end. We will go. We will proclaim. We will preach. Is this a command just for these disciples? It is a command for these disciples. Is the threat just to these disciples? There is a threat just to these disciples. But I think this goes on all the way on. There is a question, will we be part of being terrified of what we're going to be delivered unto? Whatever it is. If you become a little less popular, fine. If you lose the promotion, fine. 
if you lose some sense of standing in your family, if not as many people like you on Facebook, fine. But honestly, when I hear all of those things, I have trouble bringing them to Peter, James, and John and saying, it was really tough for me. But we know tough based on what we know is easy. And so we got to accept tough as it comes. We all want to ask the question, if a gunman came in the room and said, everybody deny Jesus or I'm going to open fire, what would we do? We all sort of feel like we do that, right? And then somebody's asking you, are you really a Christian? And we're like, oh, I go to church. Can we talk about something else? If God's going to call us to be faithful in the little steps that we have to take, the little persecutions we have to endure, won't we want to do that, that the gospel could be proclaimed in our region and in our day? because it will be proclaimed to all nations, including ours. And with that promise, here's the way it impacted those disciples. Acts chapter 5, we read this. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There's a lot we're going to learn in the next two weeks from Mark 13. There's a lot I, in the words of R.C. Sproul, need to learn before I preach the next two chapters or the next two parts of Mark 13. That said... None of what we discuss going forward will invalidate anything of what you've just heard in these first 13 verses. The disciples were about to have everything familiar ripped away from them, everything comfortable taken away from them, and they were just told they need to be on their guard and endure until the end of their days. And it worked. They did. If you know each of their stories, you hear stories minus one of faithful martyrdom. That one was a suicide and things didn't work out well for him. But you know what I'm saying with 11, right? If these are the men that we're hearing about, and this is the example ahead of us, then this is the path we want to walk to. We don't get to determine it, but we will walk it. So let's pray for strength to endure to the end ourselves. Father, we are grateful that in a day and age when you have become less popular in the mutterings and the murmurings of our society, you've simply let the clear message of the gospel ring out more truly. In a day when culture becomes more dark, you are letting the light shine more brightly. And if all around us should be silenced in their witness, Lord, we would be true to you to the end. And yet, Father, we confess we are weak. We are scared. It's easy for us to be led astray. It's easy for us to give up. It's easy for us to be surprised. And Father, I pray that we would endure as a church. May you use us in each other's lives to help us endure as a church. May you give us strength this week so that we can endure as a church. And for as long as we are called Trinity Church and we are members of one another, I pray, Lord, for strength to be on our guard and strength to endure to the end. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing together. We'll also be taking